It's Wednesday, June 6th, and this is The Daily Dive. The fashion industry has lost an icon with the death of Kate Spade yesterday. Officials say that she was found with a red scarf around her neck attached to a doorknob. She did leave a note addressed to her daughter saying, I have always loved you. Booth Moore, style and fashion news editor at The Hollywood Reporter, joins us to talk about Kate's legacy and inspiring a generation of women and female designers. We will also talk about the breakdown of the meeting between President Trump and the Super Bowl champion Philadelphia Eagles. The president canceled the event after some reports said that five or fewer players would be in attendance. Andrew Beaton, sports reporter for The Wall Street Journal, will join us to talk about the ongoing feud between the president, the NFL, and its players. Finally, Apple has announced a new suite of monitoring tools and controls that are aimed at helping to curb that phone addiction you might have. New features will allow you to monitor how many times you pick up your phone and set limits for how much time is spent on any given app. We will speak to sociologist and writer Dr. Anna Akbari for more on how you can kick that phone addiction. It's all about setting some simple rules, but it's up to you to follow them. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Certainly, there are still hundreds of Kate Spade stores, both in the U.S. and internationally. So her name is still out there, and there's a lot of affection for it that maybe she didn't even realize at the end. Joining us now is Booth Moore, style and fashion news director at The Hollywood Reporter. Thank you very much for joining us, Booth. Thanks for having me. So we wanted to talk about Kate Spade. The fashion industry lost an icon yesterday. She was found dead in her home by suicide. She um, had a a scarf around her neck and it was attached to a doorknob. Very sad news. But we wanted to talk about her impact on the industry and how she came to prominence and really what she did for a generation of women and female designers. How did she get her start? She started out as a magazine editor and in the early 90s, she couldn't really find any handbags that she wanted to carry as a young working professional woman. And so she created her own. And if you keep in mind that this was coming off of the height of the 1980s, where everything was very logoed and very sort of in-your-face luxury, I think it's, it's very notable that what she created were these simple nylon totes. And at the very last minute, the night before she introduced them at a trade show, she had the idea to put the label from the inside to the outside. And it was a very discreet logo, Kate Spade, just kind of spelled out in black and white on a little white label. But it really became a status symbol for a generation of women who remember them as their first handbags that they got in high school or college. And interestingly, she also created this category of attainable luxury that we now see has sort of spun out into a number of brands like Tory Burch and Michael Kors and, you know, just kind of the bags that were priced maybe a little bit out of range. So you would save up for a while to get one. And, you know, it really stood for something for women. Was putting the label on the outside something that hadn't really been done before? No, I mean, certainly there were lots of European brands that had logoed bags like Gucci or Louis Vuitton. This was an American brand and it was founded by a woman and it really stood for sort of modern independence, this kind of preppy, peppy, fun-loving attitude that a lot of women related to. And I think it's interesting that there are so many tributes flooding in on social media 
really from, you know, everyone from Hollywood stars like Mindy Kaling and Lena Dunham to people on both sides of the political spectrum. Chelsea Clinton uh, remembers that her grandmother gave her her first Kate Spade bag. And then, you know, Ivanka Trump, who has her own fashion brand, also paid tribute to the brand. So it really did is something that resonated with, with many, many women. And it's just so interesting when, when she started, she used her 401k money to launch this line of, uh, of the tote bags. Yeah, like many women do, you know, you, you kind of find money and sometimes designers even, you know, they run up their credit cards or they borrow from friends. They start small in an apartment um, or in their, at their kitchen table in the case of Tory Burch. So it's really um, a success story in that sense, too. And, and, you know, she created from these bags an entire lifestyle that really uh, was very identifi- identifiable. It was kind of this sunny, optimistic vibe, which sadly could be farther from this this tragic end to her life. Can you talk a little bit more about the style? It was very simplistic with the bags initially, but the clothes and everything else ended up being very colorful. What was her style? Yeah, very colorful, um, slightly retro, very feminine. You know, if you look at Kate Spade herself, she had a very signature style. She would also often wear her hair up in, in a beehive or, you know, in a bouffant and um, would wear capri pants. Almost if you think of like Audrey Hepburn, she had a very retro ladylike style that was identifiable. And that kind of spread into her collections. She used a lot of florals and she launched stationery and home accessories and bed sheets and really everything that you could think of for this sort of classy, stylish, feminine lifestyle. And she even wrote books about entertaining and living too. So she she really was an icon. You mentioned in your piece for The Hollywood Reporter that her business path is also a cautionary tale for those who would like to expand in in their own business. Uh, She apparently grew the empire, sold the company, but she also sold her name. So she wasn't able to use that in other projects. Yeah, I think, you know, it's something that has certainly happened to other designers and, you know, you expand and expand and expand and then your name becomes so valuable that it's very enticing to sell it. And then sadly, I think then the name can sort of change hands. And in her case, it uh, was sold to different conglomerates, to Liz Claiborne and then to Coach, which is now called Tapestry and got farther and farther away from her. And I have talked to other creatives and it's that can be quite frustrating and certainly you make a big paycheck from doing that but you also don't have a creative outlet anymore and so you know she actually started a new line in 2016 Francis Valentine and she changed her surname to Kate uh, to Valentine so her name was Kate Valentine but it's very difficult to strike gold twice in the fashion industry it's difficult to strike gold once and I think that that brand unfortunately hadn't gotten the same kind of traction that Kate Spade did in the beginning. What's going to be her lasting impact, her legacy on the fashion industry? I mean, she created a great American fashion brand. And right now, I think we're going to have to see what the future of that is. I mean, certainly there are still hundreds of Kate Spade stores, both in the U.S. and internationally. So her name is still out there and there's a lot of affection for it that maybe she didn't even realize at the end. Booth Moore, Style and Fashion News Director for The Hollywood Reporter. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. (laughs) 
the Eagles are the ones that tried to change their commitment at the 11th hour. And the president, frankly, thinks that the fans deserve better than that. And therefore, we changed the ceremony to be a focus on celebrating our great country. If this wasn't a political stunt by the Eagles franchise, then they wouldn't have planned to attend the event and then backed out at the last minute. Joining us now is Andrew Beaton. He's a sports reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a, a lively offseason. It has been, yeah. The president has continued this feud that he has with the NFL and, and NFL players. He was supposed to have the Super Bowl champions, Philadelphia Eagles, go to the White House. They were going to have a big event. And then on Monday night, he decided to disinvite them, it seemed like. Uh, he said, they're no longer invited. We're going to have another event instead. Most of yesterday, everybody spent defending themselves. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the press secretary, put out a statement clarifying what happened behind the scenes. So what happened and why did this whole thing fall apart? Well, if you take it back, the Eagles are actually a pretty interesting team in the social scope of the NFL because a number of their players were at the forefront this year of the player-led social activism. You have Malcolm Jenkins, who was the head of a group of players called the Players Coalition that negotiated with the league to pledge money to the causes that the players really cared about. You had Chris Long, who donated his salary to charity and was another player that really became a face of this movement. But what's interesting is also that you didn't see any Philadelphia Eagles kneeling during the regular season or during the playoffs or during the Super Bowl, which makes interest microcosm here in that, you know, we've gotten so focused on the kneeling, but they were a team that was very active in other ways. I mean, the players can protest in other ways for a lot of the season. Malcolm Jenkins raised his fist. But what I think became clear was that not many Philadelphia Eagles players were going to go to this event. They disagreed with the president on any number of issues, and they had done so publicly throughout the year, and they weren't going to go. And I think the White House disinvited them only after it became clear that the contingent of Philadelphia Eagles that was going to show up was actually fairly small. It did seem, I don't know if it was maybe a failure of planning. According to Sarah Huckabee Sanders, she said initially 81 people from the organization were going to be attending. And then at the last minute, they said, well, it's going to be probably less than 10 people. So that does kind of leave the White House a little bit on the lurch there. According to Politico, insiders said that at one point, the White House thought that they were creating a political stunt about it. They wanted to make them look bad. And, and the president called BS. And that's why he canceled it. And instead, they were going to have a, another event where the uh, United States Marine Band and the United States Army Chorus was going to be there at the White House uh, singing the national anthem and a couple of other songs. That's basically what ended up taking place instead of the players getting out there. It's just so much, so interesting to take a step back here and think on what the NFL has done this offseason, where after two years of this player protesting being a political lightning rod, that they finally changed the rule. A lot of people weren't happy about the rule change, but it was in effect to appease the side of the population that felt that these protests were unpatriotic. President Donald Trump was a leader of that point of view. And so they changed that rule to say that the players on the field have to stand, and then he still takes issue with it. He's coming after the league again and players on Twitter, and it's the type of thing where they want the league really wanted to put this issue to bed, and it became all of a sudden clear in this last day or so since the announcement came out that 
this issue isn't going to bed, that it's a very complicated issue. People feel very passionately about it on on both sides of the issue. And so there are players who aren't happy that they're being told that they can't express their views. You still have people upset about what the NFL has done. And I just can't wait to fast forward to August because this conversation is actually fairly meaningful and to see what the players do come the time games actually start. Yeah, and as you mentioned, none of the Eagles players took a knee or did any of that stuff, even though the president put that in his tweet saying they, they disagree with me on this stuff. They're not necessarily at fault with all that side of it. What was the reaction from a lot of the players? I know you mentioned Malcolm Jenkins. He was very came out very strong, said they keep trying to portray us as anti-military and unpatriotic, but that's not the case. Yeah, I think you saw that from a lot of the players. Like they, You saw former Eagles wide receiver who was on the team last year, Torrey Smith, express a similar sentiment. And it was a locker room that at, when people said we want to keep politics out of sports, when they won the Super Bowl, one of the messages that seemed to come out of it was, you know, we had a productive conversation in our locker room. We Not all of us agreed on every topic and every issue, but we also felt that this was an important discussion and that we had, had it in a constructive manner. And I think in some ways the the Eagles were an interesting example of how oh, you don't just have to stick to sports, but they were able to have constructive discussions on these topics and whether or not uh, individual people agree with their method. I think in general, they have really resented being portrayed as anti-military, as anti-American, when in reality, what they're trying to do is call attention to issues that they face in their America and that it's not being anti-American. It's just trying to raise awareness on important social justice issues. The conversation is just going to keep going. Uh, LeBron James had said that despite who wins the NBA finals, neither team is going to go to the White House if they were invited. Nobody wants to be invited, is I think what he said. And beyond that, when football season starts again, this conversation, it doesn't seem like it's going to have an end. It doesn't have an end. And and in some ways, that's an issue that the league has to face going forward. The, The purpose of this rule change was that they wanted to quiet the discussion and not have this narrative that the NFL is anti-American because they certainly don't feel that's the case. Roger Goodell has said over and over he'd like the players to stand even before they made the rule change. But in general, I think they think it's good for business when their business isn't intertwined with politics. Andrew Beaton, sports reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Screen time empowers you with both insight and control over how you spend your time. And it starts with reports. You get a weekly activity summary that details how you used your iPhone or iPad. Joining us now is Dr. Anna Akbari. She's the author of Startup Your Life, Hustle and Hack Your Way to Happiness. Earlier this year, two large investors has had urged Apple to do more to combat smartphone overuse among children, addiction, and then they promised that they were going to create something, more robust parental controls, and do a, a range of things. So yesterday, they had their Apple Worldwide Developers Conference, and they unveiled a bunch of things that would help do some of that. Uh, some of the things were features that would monitor how much you're using apps. There was mm-hmm. a thing that was called screen time, where parents could set more robust parental controls, including when their children could use apps or how long they could use apps. But we wanted to talk to you about this, the impact about how smartphones are really impacting our lives and what we can do to limit, to disconnect ourselves from that stuff. 
So what suggestions would you have for somebody that really needs to disconnect from their smartphone use? The overarching recommendation that I would give is that you have to start creating rules and boundaries in your life because the technology is just too powerful. It's not something that we can casually engage with without there being a very huge temptation on both the personal and the professional side for us to be constantly tethered to it. And it, as you probably know, it hits that sort of pleasure center in our brain whenever we get notifications. And that's actually addictive. When people like what we're posting and it gives us that little happiness (laughs) that that everybody likes what we're doing. Yep. So any kind of a a like or an engagement, a direct message, anything like that, even if you have a lot of notifications set on your phone that aren't even personal, getting a, a news notification can do that, which is silly, right? That should never excite us. The bottom line is that unless you create the rules, I mean, it's great that companies like Apple are trying to de- design for healthier habits, but that alone is not going to be enough. We have to take a huge chunk of that responsibility on ourselves. And I think that really starts with deciding what are the things that matter to you? What's your sort of life motto? What, why do you get up in the morning? What are the choices that you can make that will help to actualize that? So I essentially encourage people to approach this problem from that positive angle so that it doesn't just seem like it's all a restriction. It's more of a moving toward the things you love and care about and then deciding what are the lifestyle changes that you need to make to facilitate that. You had a series of suggestions in an article you wrote. Uh, One of them was deleting select social media apps, which I think is really important. You don't necessarily need all of them. A lot of them serve the same type of functions. So what would you suggest in that vein right there? When I say delete uh, select social media apps, I also am not saying you can't have a presence on those platforms. So for instance, you can delete the Facebook app, but still allow yourself to visit it on your laptop periodically. The problem is our smartphones in particular encourage us to use them in a different way than our computers are. People often enjoy turning off their computer. They become terrified when they turn off their phone. So sometimes you just need to shift the technology tool on which you're engaging with these platforms. And social media is a great one to do that with. Right. Yeah. I think that's a great suggestion. Like you said, it's the immediacy of having the phone there. There's a little more work having to do it, uh, having to go to your computer and access it there. But you can still get that same interaction that you want. It's just a little more work for you. And and that kind of helps, you know, creating those rules, setting those boundaries there. Another thing you had said, obviously, turning off those notifications. That is chief among the things that are always catching your eye. It's always activating the screen, lighting it back up. So you're always peeking over. Hey, what's next? What's new? What's the right. latest news development? So I think that's another one that is key among uh, among all these suggestions. There are very few notifications that are really actually urgent. Have you ever had an urgent like on something that you posted? <laughs> that just doesn't exist, right? So knowing well, that not unless I just put up my vacation pictures. That's never been an emergency to which you need to attend. So therefore you want to shift it so that you are going to the platform, it's not seeking you out. And that's really the rule that you want to 
think about and practice whenever you're deciding which notifications are essential. So ones that would be considered more essential that you would probably want to keep on would be maybe some direct messages, text messages, bank notifications. I like to keep those on. Things like that, it actually makes sense to have your notifications on. And everything else you don't really need to have on. And I include email in that. Unless you are in the middle of some big project and you need it to constantly be pushing out to you, have it so that you have to go into your email app and hit refresh. It's much better when you seek out uh, this information than than when it's constantly bombarding and distracting you. You know, these companies are all in the game of getting to use their products more and more. With some of these things that Apple has announced, being able to limit when you use apps, how long you use apps, just even notifying you how many times you're picking up the phone. Do you think these things will help? I think they're a step in the right direction. I think if you choose to ignore them, or again, if you haven't really identified why that matters to you and why your life is better as a result of it, then no, I think you will persist in your, in your old habits and behaviors. But if you do make that commitment, if you do start to really feel the difference in the way you're able to get into a workflow or the depth of the conversations that you have, then yes, I think it's very incentivizing. Dr. Anna Akbari, where can we find out more about you? You can find me at my website, AnnaAkbari.com, which is A-N-N-A-A-K-B-A-R-I, and that same name on both Twitter and Instagram. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Okay, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.